Good morning. <coughs> I kind of sang my voice out, so I took a sip of water, went down the wrong pipe. <coughs> Just a normal day for me. <coughs> Excuse me. We always want to be so professional, and <coughs> life is like that. Good morning. Hey, we're in James chapter 4, verses 11, all the way through chapter 5, verse 6. So I'd like to read that with you. And what James is uh, looking at here, in my opinion, is uh, life. A life of faith, and particularly... Uh, issues of faith in regard to dealing with people and dealing with uh, plans and uh, dealing with prosperity. So people, plans, and prosperity. How do we handle those uh, in faith? And most important, God's got to be in the picture. And that's what we're talking about. So... Uh, let me read that to us, James chapter 4, starting with verse 11. Do not speak e evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or sister or judges his brother or sister speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him or her, it's sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Kind of like James has a light touch, doesn't he? You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. 
Well, who do these uh, descriptions, these pictures of, uh, of people, uh, situations, obviously, that uh, people are in that James is writing to in this letter, uh, that's who he's thinking of. Does anybody come to mind for you? Well, whoever comes to mind, whether the uh, resemblance is strong or weak, it's important to remember we all have a little of this in each of us. Uh, in w what is this? Uh, this is self-righteousness. This is self-reliance. And this is self-indulgence. Yeah, in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4, he's talking about self-righteousness. And in verses 13 through 17, he's talking about self-reliance. And in verses 1 through 5 of chapter uh, 5, he's talking about self-indulgence. So he says to the people who are self-righteous in verse 11 and 12, and he actually mentions God in verse 12, uh, he says, uh, you self-righteous people, what about the lawgiver? What about the judge? And then in verses 13 through 17, uh, James uh, talks to those who are self-reliant and making plans with no thought of God. And James says, what about the Lord? In verse 15. And then in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5, he's talking to the self-indulgent who have been very prosperous in life. And James says to them, what about the Lord of hosts? Or he actually invokes the title of God used in the Old Testament, Lord Sabaoth, Lord of armies. What about him? Have you thought about him in the way you're managing your prosperity in your self-indulgence? In other words, the way we deal with people, plans, and prosperity has a lot to do with faith in God. And when we are not exercising our faith in God, we are likely to become preoccupied with ourselves. And it will manifest, it will come out in self-righteousness, self-reliance, and self-indulgence. But that's not the way it should be when God is God in our lives. These descriptions are disturbing. They should be troubling. They are pictures of life without Christ. And they're Christians. James is writing to believers in Jesus Christ. He's writing to people who say, yeah, I'm a disciple of Jesus. 
And these are the, this is a description of how they're living. And these, these areas of life, dealing with people and plans and prosperity, in other words, or do you have people in your life? Yeah, well, this is relevant. Uh, do you ever make plans? Yeah, we're looking into the future. You know, we're always jockeying for position. Get ready for tomorrow. What are you doing tomorrow? Come on, let's do this. Let's do that. Man, I'm living for the weekend. I can hardly get through this week. Life is so tough. Can't wait to go to that party on Friday. Oh, I got a little extra. I I got a little uh, pin money. I got a little spending money. What, am I, what, what will I buy? What will I do with my extra? See, all these things are what James is pinpointing here. But the disturbing part is that he is painting a picture of Christians who behave and act and deal with each other, with the future, and with that little extra as if Christ didn't even exist. That's disturbing. I'm, I'm not disturbed by it at all. We shouldn't be disturbed at it, at it at all when we look out there in the world and we see people just, you know, getting all they can get, being all they can be, even if it is at the expense of others. Get ahead. Only one life to live. But when Christians are doing that, In 1973, I was a, a college student, and I had given my life to Christ the year before, and I was in a real dry spot. You know, I, I mean, really, I felt like I was hiking through a valley without water, and I was parched, and I was just wrung out. God seemed so far away. It was like he was beyond the mountains that I had to get over at, once I got across this valley, maybe on the other side where the breeze is cool and there's running water that's clear and the trees are green and the fruit is ripe, man, what I'd give to be there right now. But I wasn't. And a friend invited me to go down to L.A. with him. I was happy to get out of Modesto. We went down to L.A. and we attended church services at Van Nuys First Baptist Church. I'd never been there. I'd heard about it. I was happy to be there. And they had a, a ministry to a college and career-aged, you know, people. And the speaker that morning spoke right to me. It really was a life changer because I went in there dry. It was like, impress me. But I wasn't expecting anything. And I was empty. Christianity just seemed kind of like a limping dead thing for me in my own life. And this guy spoke truth. And he kept asking one question. I can't remember anything else he said. It was good. I remember that. I remember how it made me feel, but I don't remember what he said. But he did say this again and again. And I remember it to this day. 
I ask myself this question periodically. When I matured, after I got married, when I had kids, when I became somebody, when I became a pastor and became nobody, are you doing what you'd be doing anyway? That's the question. Are you doing what you'd be doing anyway? See, these descriptions describe people who are doing what they'd be doing anyway. And the anyway means if Jesus was not claimed to be the Lord of their lives, if they hadn't heard and responded to the gospel, if God was not the Lord of their lives. And that's what was happening in my life. Jesus had rocked my world, but I was doing what I'd be doing anyway. We can do that. We can fall into that. We can get our pattern, but we can check out on our faith, right? We got our routine, we've got our groove going, but we check out on our faith. We know we'll go to church on Sunday. We know we've got an R group. We know, hey, we bought tickets for the fun fest. I meet with these people, I go to work here, I go to school there, I meet with my friends there. Whoa, it's going to be so good because we're going to break the routine and go have some fun. And so fun is signified by stuff that doesn't belong to faith or the routine. And you can see the way it kind of goes. It was, in fact, Dallas Willard that said, God does not ordinarily compete for our attention. He does not ordinarily break into our routine. If we set the routine and he's included, he'll be there. But he's not going to come around and, and drag you into thinking about him. That's our job. That's the exercise of faith. That's why Jesus said, follow me. Not, I'll be chasing you. James is calling them, and he's calling our attention to this. Make room for God. It's as simple and as challenging as that. Make room for God. When I say make room for God, I'm speaking about being mindful, being aware of God's presence, matching then that awareness with trust, with love, and obedience. That's faith. It, the more we do it, the more it becomes secondhand. Mindfulness is paying attention. It's being present with God. Without making room for God, people can be filled with self-righteousness. Without making room for God, plans can be filled with self-reliance. 
And without room for God, prosperity can be filled with self-indulgence. Late yesterday afternoon, I was trying to get this all into presentable shape. It was about 2.30 or 3, and I, I just realized I couldn't do it. So you're all dismissed. <laughs> no, no. See, there's kind of a lighthearted, funny side to me. Um, I decided that th this, this message really needs to be spread out over three Sundays. Here's the bad news. Um, so the bad news is, is all the good stuff is next Sunday and the following Sunday. So bear with me today. We're going to look at the first part there, um, verses 11 and 12. And then next Sunday, Lord willing, James 4.15, we'll look at the following verses, 13 through 17. And then, Lord willing, in two Sundays, we'll look at 5, 1 through 5. All right. Let's look at this first part. Consider this first point. Without room for God, people can be filled with self-righteousness. That's in verse 11 and 12. I've, I've pastored for some 45 years. I'm embarrassed to say that. That's a long time. And uh, when you pastor, uh, it's all about people. People, people, people. Pastoring is peopling. The church is all about people. And I don't know a pastor alive or dead that wouldn't say church would be great if it weren't for the people. Problem people are everywhere. In and out of the church, except in the mirror. Shelley calls uh, problem people sandpaper people. I like that. Sandpaper people. But the point James is making is we're all sandpaper people. We're all problem people because we have a sinful nature. That's, that's what Jesus came to fix, you know? And as the more we admit God to our lives, the more we believe in his word, the more we follow Jesus, the more we get the victory over the problems that make us problem people. We become uh, more gracious, more charitable, more kind, more loving. We're not, you know, so quick to snipe. We're not mean-spirited. We're not vengeful. We're sacrificial. If this isn't happening, well, I'm not going to say anything. But it should be happening. Yeah, it takes time. It takes a lifetime. We're on a curve. And when we die and go to be with the Lord and we're resurrected, wow, that's going to be an uptick. But in the meantime, we're becoming more like Christ and we're realizing the power of the gospel through faith in our lives. James here 
in verse 11 and 12, obviously has gotten some news about brothers and sisters in Christ, people he really cares about, that, as you, you may recall from previous message, I try to bring before us the reality that James is writing to fellow Jewish Christians. He was the leader of the church, the very early followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. That's where it all began, right? That's where Jesus was crucified. That's where he rose from the dead. That's where he appeared to his disciples. Those disciples were Jewish. The first people that joined the disciples were Jewish. And then when the persecution was taken up, many of them scattered. James is writing to them. These are brother and sisters in Christ. He cares about them. But he's hearing some things that really disturb him. And they're fighting like cats. Listen to what he says there in, in verse 11. He calls them, he says, they're slandering. Uh, this was one of the first early Greek words I learned. It mean, it, if you were to be real literal about it, it would mean to talk down. I think of it as bad-mouthing. He says, you're bad-mouthing your brothers and sisters. But you notice that James does not take up whatever the subject is and take sides. He's not interested in the topic that's dividing them. He's not interested in who's right or wrong. And I'm sure on both sides, there's right and there's wrong. Doesn't there always have to be that? I mean, if I think you're right, then I'm not going to fight you about it. I'm going to say I'm sorry. So the fact that they're fighting, they think, they're, both sides think they're right. And James says you're both wrong because it's not what you're fighting over that I'm interested in, and it's not who's right or wrong. It's the way you are treating one another. He says, you're slandering and you're condemning brothers and sisters in Christ. We're lost if we do that to our brothers and sisters. We're lost if one side of the aisle can't talk to the other. Because we're supposed to be on the same team. Jesus talked about this. Abraham Lincoln, during the Civil War, picked it up. A house divided cannot stand. Well, I believe that. And I'm waiting for those people to come over here. Right? I've, I see it all the time. I think that's exactly right, Pastor. Now, I believe with good old Abe, and I side with Jesus on this. I'll be ready when they get here. I'm waiting for them to come crawling over. 
They say, that's not the spirit of Christ. That's not the spirit of the gospel. It starts with us. If, if I'm 5% wrong, I start with that 5%. But it's not just about moving 5%. It's about seeing the good that can come and how we need to be working and living and loving together. Because Jesus didn't just come for an individual so that we can be in pods of happiness and contentment. Jesus is trying to create a people for himself, a new nation, a new race of people with the power of the resurrection. New life, life over death. And we're so petty. We're not going to budge. He, she's more wrong than me. And yet we're supposed to be Jesus in these situations. We're enlightened. We're empowered with new hearts, new hopes, new grace. Everything we need, we're equipped to do. You go first, not until you go first. That's self-righteousness. Through and through. And James says, what about the law? Now this gets interesting, and it also is very confusing. What about the law? You're not doing the law. What law are they supposed to be doing? Brother, sister, and then James gives us a clue right in the end. First he says, you're not doing it, you're breaking it, you're standing over it, you're looking down on the law with your snooty look-down look over your glasses. You're denying that there's a lawgiver and that he's the judge. Who are you to judge your neighbor? There's the clue. He's talking about the great commandment again. The yoke of Jesus. Love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. But you can't even love your brother or sister. How are you going to love your neighbor? Where is God in all of this? That's what James is talking about. Where is the Lord? And he's, see, he's, he's not... He's not the judge who's on the take, see? The judge and the lawgiver. He's not the judge who's on the take. He's not the judge who shows favoritism. He's the good judge. He's the holy judge, the fair judge, the loving judge, the judge that we want to be in the hands of. We want to be in his hands. Because he's merciful and gracious. He's the judge that sent Jesus. And now he's put that judgment in Jesus' hands. Do you realize that? James doesn't say it explicitly, but if you read John chapter 5, verse 20 to 30, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He says, God's given me all the judgment. I do the judging. He's given me the power of life. I'm the resurrected one. 
And he's the one who before he claimed all that power and those prizes through his death and resurrection, he's the one who kept saying, love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, it's hard to do. Yes, it is. It is hard. Oh, do you ever get acid reflux or something like that? I don't, so I don't know anything about it. But it, do you? Ever have a little heartburn? Something come up? Oh, okay. I kind of get that sometimes when, when God says, that's your neighbor too, John. Start loving. I can't love that person. I know that. That's why I'm here. I'm God, and you're not. Love in my power. But see, we can't do that if we're, if we're living life, if we're just doing what we'd be doing anyway. If we're living in our own strength. Why slap a Jesus sticker on it? I came face to face with that as a young man. I suppose that's why I'm in ministry. Because I realized I would be one of the biggest frauds if I just fall into this thing where I go through all the routines, but I know nothing of the power of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And when I use gospel, I know it's a tired term, but for me, it's full of life. It's good news. It's the best news. It's the only news. James is talking about that. In fact, you know, the, the love your neighbor as yourself comes from Leviticus 19.18. What James is talking about in verse 11 and 12 is described in verse seven, 16, 17, and 18, leading up to Leviticus 1918. So there's even the context of it. Let me say just a word about the power of words, because none of this happens without words. You can't slander, you can't condemn without words. Words are powerful. Do you remember a time you've been hurt, wounded? You were anxious, had trouble sleeping. Words do that. Yeah, sometimes the power of those words that hurt, that made your stomach upset, that gave you a headache, that even gave you heartache, it was the power of the person using those words on you, against you to inform you, to leave you, to hurt you. Words have power. I read uh, on Twitter, it wasn't somebody that uh, I follow, it was evidently someone I followed, retweeted what a, what a person said, and this was from June 15th, this year, just a month ago. It said, I break my own heart expecting people to be as attached to me as I am to them. See, that kind of hurt justifies retaliation, hurt for hurt. 
Notice again what he says, expecting people to be as attached to me as I am to them. That is a standard. That is the foundation of the great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a standard. The golden rule is a standard. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's a standard. Every one of us knows how we want to be treated. Uh, by the way, if you would like to take my manual home with you sometime, it'll inform you exactly how I like to be treated. I like to be treated courteously and kindly. I want you to expect the best of me. I want you to love me all the time. I want you to speak well of me. I want you to think highly of me. I, am I just speaking for myself here? And Jesus says, well, if that's what you want for yourself, give that to others. That's a standard. This man had a standard. I expect others. Jesus gives us a standard. Here's another standard. It's the most misinterpreted, misunderstood verse, I think, in the Bible. Do not judge so that you will not be judged, for by the standard you judge, you will be judged, and the measure you use will be the measure you receive. Jesus is talking about the way you judge others, and that is your standard. And he's saying, God's going to judge you by your standard. Really, don't feel bad, because the verdict's already in. Everybody's guilty. But we can learn. If God, God called David on the carpet with the prophet Nathan, he used a standard, David's standard. Nathan told him a parable about a bully who took advantage of others. David got incensed. Find that man. Punish him. And Nathan said, you're the man. Words can give us a headache, a stomach ache, a heartache because they're judgmental. They impose standards that are nothing to do with grace. And we become engaged in them when we walk away from the Lord who loves us. The Lord who asks us to use his standard of grace and love to be our power in the way we use words and that's why we have greater power and should give greater power to the words of Jesus. Real quick, I've learned a lot over the years in life experience about words. Words are a part of my toolkit or toolbox as a pastor, unfortunately. I've had to learn more. I still can't write worth a hoot, but anyway, I have a few things I'd like to just share. I've got, let's see, five, five things. We could say so much more. First, the only good words are true words. These are things that I want you to know about words and their power. The only good words are true words. 
Try to be as truthful. Try to be as accurate as you can be. It's a process. It's a pursuit. And as you pursue to describe and use good descriptive words that approximate or resemble what you are thinking or what you should be thinking or whatever you want to communicate, the better you are and you'll get better at it. And it's very, very important. A lot of people engage in subjective words. I'm still on the same point, by the way. In counseling, people will talk about themselves. I always, never, everybody, should, have to, must. Those are all exaggerations. That's not the kind of accuracy and precision I'm talking about. When Shelley, if you don't know Shelley, she and I are married. She's my first marriage. Shelley and I have been married a long time. And when we used to fight, we would hear always and never. Every time I'd hear that always, I'd say, wait a second, I was trying. I just tried yesterday. In other words, it nullifies those exaggerations. Yeah, you, you're trying to say, oh, this is how I feel. You use language to hype your emotion, to earn pity or interest or whatever. But in the process, you sacrifice accuracy and you hurt people. And also, and more importantly, words are powerful because they're the way you organize your perception of reality. So your descriptions drive the way you feel and the way you speak and the way you see God and the way you see the world and the way you see others. And when you use words in a sloppy way, oh man, you're like a contaminant. We are like contaminants. It takes practice. You don't have to. You can say no. Or you can say, I get to. It isn't everybody. If it was everybody, man, I'd get down on my knees and cry with you. You still have the Lord. He's the most important one. If we would seek to be more precise, it would be very, very helpful. I never say my church, my staff, my people, my this, my that, because I am practicing observance of the lordship of Jesus Christ. So you'll never, never, almost never, you probably will never hear me say, my church, except by illustration, which I just did. <laughs> but it is, a, it is an, a practice in walking close to the reality of what I think is true. It is the Lord's church. It's not mine. The staff is not mine to do with as I please. I'm a servant too. I follow him you follow him. I don't, I'm not your superior. I can't get you to go do anything you don't want to do. 
But if you think that I'm giving, if you think that I'm pointing you to Jesus Christ, if I'm a true advocate for him, if I'm endorsing him, then you'll probably listen to me. And maybe you'll do some of the things that you know I'm doing too, because I'm a disciple too. Secondly, turn true words on yourself. I've had cancer. Shelley's got cancer. We want doctors who give us right diagnoses. It's important to speak truth to yourself. And don't think, I'm just speaking metaphorically. If you tell yourself lies, you are laying time bombs, depth charges. You are pouring toxic poison into your system. And it will affect your perception of life it's important. Preach to yourself, yeah. Third, find ways to heal, not harm. Find, way to heal, find ways to heal, not harm. The Lord is the healer. And use his healing to heal. And that's what brings me to the fourth point. Let the Lord not hurt rule your heart. And finally, I want to encourage you to memorize and practice Philippians 4, 8 and 9. I'm going to do it too. Here's what it says. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just or right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, things about these, think about these things. And what you've learned, this is interesting now, you've got to hear Paul, he's the writer. He says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Do these things. I'm, I'm your example. If, if, you have if you have trouble translating that other stuff, just look at me. But you know what? Each one of us should be striving to be able to say that. And then Paul concludes, and the God of peace will be with you. Peace is a precious thing. I don't care how you define it. These are very valuable truths that Paul has just uttered. And they underscore what James is talking about. It certainly supports what I've learned. I encourage it. I recommend it to you. But it'll never happen. Never happen if you don't make room for God. You can have all the tactics down. You can have maps and charts. You can have the best GPS. You could have satellite on your side. But if you don't push the button, none of it's going to happen. Will you stand with me? Make room for God. That's what we're going to be thinking about, I hope. How can I make room for you, Lord? How can I be mindful of you? Do that throughout each day. 
we're going to be focusing on that the next couple of weeks. Let me pray for us. I want to remind you, I'll be up here along with other pastors, leaders, and staff, and spouses, if you would like to pray with us. If you'd like to know how to let God in, we'll be here. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, God bless you.